This is a country unlike, you know, authoritarian countries or rigid, kind of paternalistic countries where you could just be yourself and that's valued. That's Amy Chua, the noted author, Yale Law School professor, and a refreshingly independent voice for this Independence Day episode. And one of the things that you know, attracted my parents, or my father especially, he was a real maverick, is American individualism. Like any good maverick or independent, though, Amy's not afraid to criticize the excesses and abscesses of American politics. And I just don't know what's happened to our society. I mean, some of my views are pretty far to the left. Some of my views are might be considered pretty far to the right. It's just... I think I'm a pretty moderate person overall, but, you know, we're all informed by our past. Polarization is certainly one thing that has happened to our society, leaving independents and centrists and moderates without much of a voice. Except here on The Purple Principle, a podcast about the perils of that polarization. I'm Robert Pease, and this episode we'll hear from Amy Chua about our zero-sum American orthodoxies, our destabilizing inequalities, and the challenges of teaching law students in a hyper-partisan environment. Which side are you on, friends? Which side are you on? No platform for fascists, no platform at all. We'll ask Amy Chua to comment on a few of the many prescient passages of her classically purple book, Political Tribes. But let's start back where things started for this indie-minded individual, Amy Chua, as a second-generation Asian-American kid growing up in the Midwest. And it may be hard for you guys to imagine this now. You know, this is in the 60s and 70s, and uh, I was the pretty much the only Asian kid in, I don't know, my whole school, the whole neighborhood. And yeah, as kids will do, you know, some guy ran around making slanty eyes, you know, and sort of mocking my accent. And I came home and I was upset. I must have been about seven and complained to my mom that this guy had done this. And my mom was mad at me, not the kid. (laughs) And she said, you know, what is wrong with you? We come from the most magnificent, the most ancient civilization. You know, we invented everything. And if this stupid kid doesn't even know that, then why would you spend one second even thinking about him. So the upshot of that is kind of that she instilled this sense of, I don't know, almost like pride in my heritage and background that became a kind of psychological armor in some ways against that kind of small time discrimination. I think a lot of readers, reviewers, and probably your students try to pigeonhole you politically and philosophy. You strike us as a very independent voice. So in your own words, tell us about your own political philosophy and orientation? Oh, I'm completely independent. And, you know, it's funny, you mentioned that my parents were both uh, immigrants from Asia. They came in the 60s and I was always taught never to complain because this is the best country. I actually think that, I like to think that there's a silent majority of reasonable secret closet moderates. I really do think that because, you know, my classes have huge wait lists and I'm, but when you read about me or what you see is that there are protests and I'm so controversial. And yet, you know, my classes are genuinely diverse. They have conservatives and they also have people on the left, but everybody who's willing to take my class, because I put a big banner on my syllabus that this is a class where 
everybody's going to talk to each other. You know, there's going to be an assumption of good faith. So by self-selection, I tend to get the more open-minded, thoughtful people, even if they have pretty extreme views themselves, the ones who are willing to talk to others. Well, speaking of that kind of dialogue, we're very interested in this term illiberalism that's capturing what seems to be happening to our civil society, our freedom of speech, rule of law. We're wondering if that's a term you use in your classes. Honestly, Robert, I have found that there are certain buzzwords that every single thing immediately gets cannibalized by political tribalism. So, you know, I don't know, five years ago, you could use this term woke, but now if you use the term woke, you're identifying yourself as somehow on the right or something. And so I actually, my strategy is the opposite of that. Ridiculously talking about free speech, which used to be a left-wing position. If you start talking about free speech, you might as well just like wear a huge sign saying right-wing. So what I feel very lucky about is my classes are, you know, I teach a class called International Business Transactions, but I use it to talk about the issues in political tribes. But I introduce my own concepts, and maybe we'll talk about some of this, like market dominant minorities, or, you know, I use kind of different frameworks. And I have found that if I just avoid certain kinds of traps or certain patterns, I can actually generate a great conversation across the political divide. I see. So you actually have to stay ahead of your students, which is not an easy thing to do because they change vocabulary pretty quickly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And I'm lucky because, you know, I've written books with these other, I mean, you know, who knows what a market dominant minority is and how does that fit into the left-right divide in the U.S.? You know, it's different than saying something like, you know, abortion or affirmative action. With those, oh my gosh, you know, you're going to go straight to vitriol on both sides. So so I've been pretty lucky. Well, that's interesting. Now, um, this may be a bit of a presumption, but do you think things are any better now that we're over, hopefully, the worst part of COVID. We're over, hopefully, you know, the worst part of the Trump period in office, January 6th, stop the steal, all that stuff. Is there a slight lowering of the temperature? Uh, <laughs> look, I teach on the most progressive campus, I think, in the country at Yale Law School. I don't myself see a lowering of the temperature yet. With COVID, you know, a lot of people thought, look, just like 9-11 brought both sides together, you know, back in 2001, maybe the pandemic will. Nope, I was right in my predictions. It was, you know, COVID was instantly cannibalized by tribalism. I think two things might lead to a better situation in future. The first is so many people getting canceled. <laughs> you know, I know a lot of students who were very strident who then have come under fire themselves. You could see this even with public figures and celebrities. And at a certain point, you know, if <laughs> once, if everybody's hit, I think there's going to be a sense that, look, maybe we've gone too far. The other thing, and this is a tragedy, I have seen that Ukraine, the Russia's invasion of Ukraine, is surprisingly an area where, again, you know, you do see on cable news pundits scrambling to figure out how can we blame this on the other side? But it is actually an area where there is relatively more agreement. I mean, nobody wants another war after Afghanistan. But that's an interesting area where I've noticed my students on both sides of the political divide do not seem to be at each other's throats. 
Yeah, that is encouraging. I guess you could say it's kind of touched our basic humanity. Let's move on then to a reading from Political Tribes, if you wouldn't mind, starting off with No Group in America Feels Comfortably Dominant. Yes, I wrote, today, no group in America feels comfortably dominant. Every group feels attacked, pitted against other groups, not just for jobs and spoils, but for the right to define the nation's identity. In these conditions, democracy devolves into zero-sum group competition, pure political tribalism. Yeah, so five years later... Any change in the situation, any change in your analysis of it? Unfortunately not. I mean, you know, what I try to do in political tribes, Robert, is to kind of rise above the fray and figure out what are the root causes of all this polarization and and bitterness right now. And one of the factors I sort of identify is the massive demographic change that we've experienced in the last 50 years. Basically, for the first time in U.S. history, Whites are on the verge of losing their majority status at the national level. And this is unprecedented. You know, whites have always been politically and culturally and economically dominant. And I'm not saying that's a good situation. That also led to things like slavery and all kinds of terrible things. But the significance for this moment is that today it's not just, you know, racial and ethnic minorities who feel threatened. Whites feel threatened. I cite all these statistics in political tribes that show, you know, what it's like 65% of white Americans feel that they are actually subject to more discrimination than minorities. So that's one thing that's definitely not diminished in the last five years. But I wonder if you see it as uh, possibly helpful that the census has now a new category, the multiracial category, 10% of the population and very likely increasing steadily. Well, I take your point. To be very honest, for me, it's a little bit distressing what I see on college campuses, which I would describe as just further and further splintering and fragmenting. So, you know, it used to be that I could host parties with, you know, let's have a mixer with the Black Students Association, the Asian Association, and, you know, the Outlaws, our gay student group. No more. Today, everybody wants their own separate groups. They hang out together. It's very segregated. But worse than that, even within the groups, say within the Latino Students Association, now things are broken down by color. Okay, so there's a colorism issue, which I sympathize with. I understand. But things are, you know, it's it's just fracturing more and more and more. And so where that could offer hope, it what I've seen is in some ways, people turning on each other. It's like smaller and smaller groups, often with a kind of overlay of victimization over it, like which group is more oppressed. So for me, that uh, that hasn't necessarily been a promising development. So I think a phrase that you use in one of your interviews, the oppression Olympics are still being held, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. I, you know, it's, um, there are also psychological studies about that. That's not that healthy just to feel that way. (laughs) And, you know, something you said earlier, I mean, I think a lot of, I predicted this in political tribes, you know, when you, when you get a lot of the far left saying, you know, whites are the worst thing on the planet and just admit that you're just a genocidal people and just go to the back of the line and you should be quiet. Of course, 
that is going to provoke among some people this feeling of, hey, we're not that bad. And, you know, we also founded this country. And those people are going to be really susceptible to the appeal of demagogues, as you say. Somebody's going to say, you know what? Not only are you not so bad, but white people have done a lot of great things. And so psychologically, you could kind of see, you know, where this all came from. We're speaking with Amy Chua, noted author of Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother and of Political Tribes, one of the best explanations of how tribal thinking and mobilization undermine the norms of civil society and democracy. As promised, let's hear Amy's thoughts on a few of the many prescient passages from Political Tribes written five years ago, but resonating so powerfully in the present moment. So I wrote today's purveyors of political tribalism on both the left and the right may think they are defending America's values, but in fact, they are playing with poison. America will cease to be America and will no longer be a supergroup if we define our national identity in terms of whiteness or Anglo-Protestant culture or European Christianity or any other terms not inclusive of all religions and ethnicities. But it will also cease to be American if enough of us come to believe that our country and its ideals are a fraud. Yeah, so five years later, we know identity politics is still very polarizing. And in fact, people can agree more on policy than they can on identity. But do you see any change, any progress, any hope on that issue? Um, look, I'm usually an optimist. Maybe what I should do is explain this concept of a supergroup, which I say America is. It's something we should feel so proud of. Uh, It's a simple concept. In my book, I define a supergroup as, you know, a, a society or a country that shares two features. The first is a really strong, overarching national identity, you know, like American or, you know, Chinese. But the second condition to be a supergroup is that you also have to let subgroup and subtribal identities flourish, you know, different religions, different ethnicities. And at our best, this is America. It's a place where you can be Irish American or Korean American or Libyan American or Mexican American, Cuban American, and intensely patriotic at the same time. And if you Think about other countries like China's not a supergroup because it's got a really strong overarching national identity, but of course it doesn't let smaller subgroup identities flourish at all, like the Uyghurs or the Tibetans. But to your question, if you look at America today, it's really worrisome because I, you know, we are kind of losing that first condition. I have a lot of students now. Gen Z students, progressive students who just say, our founding fathers, they were just a bunch of dead white males. You know, they had slaves, they were misogynist. The Constitution, that's just a document that I don't identify with. And besides, the people who wrote it held, you know, had slaves anyway. And that is really troubling because 
if we don't have the U.S. Constitution and the principles in that Constitution to hold this country together, nothing can, right? Because our our foundational values are the Constitution. That's what our identity is. And we're really lucky in that sense. The U.S. identity is not ethnically based like it is in countries like China. And so this should be really good that we are able, you know, I said in political tribes that we actually had an advantage that we do not have to pick between, you know, patriotism and having a really strong national identity and multiculturalism. We can actually have both. You could have thriving sub-identities and still a really strong American identity. And I think, you know, in some ways, both prongs are being challenged right now. So we're still in some shaky waters. I think we will emerge out of this, but I don't think we've rounded the corner quite yet. Yeah, that's interesting. And in a recent episode here, we had a guest who looked back on Representative Barbara Jordan of Texas as an important figure and her famous quote about not being included in the first draft of the Constitution. We the people, it's a very eloquent beginning. But when that document was completed on the 17th of September in 1787, I was not included in that we the people. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. But through the process of amendment, interpretation and court decision, I have finally been included in we the people. That's such an important sentiment, I think, for young people to hear. Yes. Yeah, so next quote, we don't like to give this individual a lot of publicity. He seems to get too much on his <laughs> own, but on tribalism in America. Tribalism in America propelled Donald Trump to the White House. If we want to understand this tribalism, we have to acknowledge the impact of inequality and the wedge that it drives between America's whites. Coastal elites have become a kind of market-dominant minority from the point of view of America's heartland. And as we've seen all over the developing world, market-dominant minorities invariably end up producing backlash. Yeah, so a lot of important items in there. First of all, maybe you could explain a little bit market-dominant minorities and majorities. So for most of my academic career, I kind of, um, you know, focused on developing countries like Indonesia and Zimbabwe and Iraq and Venezuela. And I identified this phenomenon that was kind of unfamiliar to us in the U.S. In fact, I just said that, oh, we don't have this problem. I said that in my 2003 book, World on Fire. And a market-dominant minority is basically a tiny ethnic minority, like, for example, the 3% Chinese in Indonesia, who, despite their tiny numbers, control about 70% of the private economy. And this tiny little Chinese minority, they speak their own language, they don't intermarry with indigenous Indonesians, they're viewed as very arrogant. What I said in 2003 is that in these conditions, democracy can actually be really destabilizing because you'll get demagogues that say, hey, all of you poor majority members, vote for me and we will confiscate the assets of this market dominant minority or we'll kick them out. It's their fault. It's this tiny, arrogant group that controls everything. That's why you're poor. So vote for me. I always thought that this was not a problem that we had in the United States because 
we didn't have a market-dominant minority, not a little ethnic group that controlled most of the nation's wealth. But what I wrote in Political Tribes is that with this terrible decline in upward mobility that we've seen in the United States, you know, partly just because our, I think our education system is broke. You know, it used to be that you could be kind of a poor kid from the middle of the country, go to a free state school and somehow make it to San Francisco or New York and make it big. And the result is that I say that class has actually divided America's whites. And because of that, we've seen the emergence of, it's only an analogy because it's not an ethnic group, but I think it's our own little idiosyncratic version of a really resented market-dominant minority. And if you think about it, these cosmopolitan elites, like, you know, if you think about it, most of America's wealth actually is concentrated on either the West Coast or the East Coast. Silicon Valley, Hollywood, Wall Street, you know, Washington, the Ivy League, and Coastal elites are, they're not all white, by the way. They are, include immigrants. And its it kind of is like an ethnic group because they don't intermarry with, <laughs> I mean, look at dating apps. People will say Trump supporters need not apply. And what I wrote in Political Tribes is that what happened in the November 2016 election is actually very similar to a developing world dynamic. Basically, a demagogic figure said, we need to take back America. This country is being dominated and controlled and run into the ground by a bunch of like snobby, you know, swampy, cosmopolitan elites that have no respect for the rest of America. They're not even real Americans. We need to make America great again. These people, they care more about the poor in Africa than they do about real Americans. They care more about immigrants and letting them all in than they do about, you know, the heartland. And the rhetoric is very similar to what you saw people like Hugo Chavez saying in Venezuela. You know, it's these corrupt elites. Vote for me. So that's uh, that's the argument there. Yeah. So we'd like to play a clip from one other guest and talk a little bit more about Yale Law students and educational environments. This is uh, the president of Open Primaries, John Opdyke. Well, uh, 30 years ago, I went to college and I made the silly mistake of joining the young Republicans and the young Democrats at the same time. And I didn't know that wasn't allowed. I came from a very non-political family. I was very naive. Uh, I went away to college with somewhat of a chip on my shoulder to get more worldly and knowledgeable of how the world worked. And I thought getting involved in politics was a good way to do that. But I very quickly learned that that's not what party politics was. Party politics was, you know, picking a team, bashing the other side. Yeah, so we're wondering if you've encountered any young John Updikes wandering around the Yale campus, or does everyone arrive kind of pre-polarized? Again, this is the optimistic part of me. It is absolutely true that what you hear it would suggest that things are even worse. You know, um, I used to have, I mean, just like eight years ago, I had conservative students who could be friends with my liberal students and they would argue and debate and then go out for a beer afterwards. Right now, the lines are frozen. You know, if you are a progressive and you are seen just talking to a member of the Federal Society, 
you're instantly shamed. You know, you're called Fetzak adjacent. So I think that the phenomenon he was describing, if anything, appears to have gotten worse. The silver lining, the part where I'm hopeful, goes to, again, this idea of a silent majority. I cannot tell you, Robert, how many people come to my office and say, I didn't want to sign this document, but I just felt so much pressure, you know, uh, to sign it. Or I you know, actually don't feel this way. I actually think this person's not that bad, but I can't admit that to anyone. You know, I have a class where I make everybody write response papers and they're so brilliant and interesting. And I always like to share their views. But for the first time in 25 years of teaching, they now say, can you please not share this with the rest of the class? Can I say the opposite of what I wrote? You know, so I feel that it's both sad that they have to feel that way, but I also feel it's hopeful that there, I think it's a larger group of people than you think who are actually a little bit more independent, a little bit more blended, and see a little bit of, you know, possibility in both sides. Yeah. So, Amy, what have we missed here from your book or that you wanted to highlight as Political Tribes nears its five-year anniversary? I think the only thing I'll say is when I reread it, you know, my students also just I read a chapter of it, and everybody was struck by this prediction I made. I think it's in the first chapter. And this is five years ago, before the—I wrote it before the election, or it was just after the election of Donald Trump. Um, And what I said was, you know, if things keep going in this direction, what we're going to see is that we're going to see the United States taking on more and more of the characteristics of developing countries, including we're going to start to see lurches towards authoritarianism, rising demagoguery, and this is the main point, the erosion of trust in institutions and electoral outcomes. That's right in there. I think I wrote that in 2017. And it's something that we really need to worry about because it's definitely something new and troubling. That's Amy Chua, Yale Law School professor, somewhat infamous tiger mother, but here on The Purple Principle, much more of a role model of indie-minded American individualism for this Independence Day episode. We learned a lot from and about Amy Chua in this discussion, the psychological armor she absorbed from her own tiger mom, the confessions of her more moderate Yale Law School students feeling socially pressured to adopt more extreme positions, her great concern for our constitutional democracy as respect for American traditions and institutions erode from all directions. But also, a bit of optimism there on the come-together consensus of most Americans, most politicians included, on the Ukrainian resistance to Russian aggression. Next up on The Purple Principle, another informed individual for this Independence Day month of July. Andrew Heaton is an author, satirist, comedian, podcast host, and politics nerd. And yes, that is all one guest. I am ethnically a Republican because I'm from Oklahoma, but I worked on the Hill as a Democrat. I got really into libertarian stuff for a while. I still have leanings that are that way, but I'm, I am an independent. I'd say I am a, a temperamental moderate who wants to help people, but thinks the government's not very effective at it. So I'm kind of, that's about where I am, and you can make of that what you want. We'll try to make what we want of Andrew in that episode as he discusses his best-selling book of poetry, Los Angeles is Hideous, and the Don't California My Texas bumper stickers he observes from his home in Austin, 
on Cars with Florida license plates. It's the perfect summer soundtrack of political humor and wisdom from a think tank kind of wise guy. We hope you'll tune in and turn on some of your friends to this episode's discussion with the ever-engaging Amy Chua and something like discussion upcoming with Andrew Heaton. Many thanks for listening in from the Purple Principle team. We'd greatly appreciate your support on Patreon or Apple subscriptions. Plus, reviews on Apple Podcasts are hugely helpful, too. All of our original music is composed and created by the uber-talented Ryan Adair Rooney, and the Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production. 